Hey, welcome, friends. You've come to the right place. Happy Thanksgiving week, everyone. My name is Justin Mogg. You are tuned in to Sustainability Now here on your community radio station, Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting here at 106.5 FM from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. And we want to thank all of you who've gone to forwardradio.org in the last year and clicked on donate to help keep us on the air. We are entirely listener supported and your donations make this station run. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of our fellow volunteers who are producing programming and making sure the bills are paid and doing all the work behind the scenes to keep this station broadcasting the voice of the people to Louisville. We are so grateful to all of you this week. And I am especially grateful to Kyle Kramer this week, the director of the Earth and Spirit Center here in Louisville, who sat down for a conversation with me back at the beginning of the month uh, for his Earth and Spirit podcast. And it was a conversation I don't usually get to have. First of all, turning the mics on your host what a fun thing to do here on an unusual week. But also, uh, I was really grateful to have the chance for a deep conversation with Kyle about the connections between my faith and activism around sustainability. So I want to share that with you on this special Thanksgiving week edition of Sustainability Now. So I'm just going to turn it over to Kyle and let you listen in to our conversation from earlier this month. Well, Justin, you bring an amazing resume to your work and to this interview. You are the assistant to the Provost for Sustainability Initiatives uh, since 2009. And yes, I did have to rehearse that and have it in yeah, my notes so I could, I could quite a mouthful. say that properly, right? Uh, <laughs> at, at the University of Louisville. That's right. Uh, uh, you, in terms of background, you've got a BS in environmental studies from Oberlin. Woo-hoo. You went to UW-Madison, Un- mm. University of Wisconsin at Madison, for an MS and a PhD in land resources. Yeah. And then you were a Fulbright scholar uh, to the Philippines back in 01, working on rural development. Was there on 9-11, yeah. Just been thinking about it with the Oh my gosh, yeah, did yeah. not know that. Yeah. And then you served three years in the Peace Corps right. with your wife in Paraguay, uh, also working with rural farmers. To I'm hitting s- all the P's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, to promote with a P, sustainable rural pros- prosperity with a P. Prosperity. Oh, gosh. Th- this, this podcast may go south in the first minute and a half. And if those weren't creds enough, you're in your 40s. You've never had a license or driven a car, to my knowledge. That's right. And the only thing I've ever driven was a combine. Or your wife crazy, right? (laughs) That's right. Okay. And I love this line from your official bio. Justin seeks an earth restored and lives his life accordingly as a car-free TV-free, vegetarian, beekeeping, gardening Quaker with a fully solar-powered home. That is impressive. Every piece of that is impressive. Lay it all out. Exactly. One sentence. <laughs> so it's impressive and it's kind of intimidating for for the rest of us uh, mere mortals. And and I'm wondering if we can maybe put a human face on that by starting with a story. So how did you come to such strong convictions about protecting the planet and about living these convictions in a pretty radical way, a pretty countercultural way? And, yeah. and taking on not only the work that you do, but the lifestyle that you lead. How did you get there? Well, you know, a lot of this comes from parents who care, right? And modeling their behaviors. My dad was a lifelong, still is, bike commuter, right? 
And so seeing him pedal even on days when it's snowing out and sort of thriving with that challenge and enjoying the challenge of being car-free taught me some lessons. And uh, certainly growing up in a place where I could get out in my backyard in Arlington, Virginia, in the D.C. area, is right up back of a city park that had a creek running through it. And I could go poke around in the creek and turn over rocks and watch the life and ecosystem of that watershed and learn from it. That sort of got me in touch with my natural self, right, my my role in nature. But my parents were certainly always bringing home political issues, too. And growing up in the D.C. area, protest was just a part of what we did. Uh, so, you know, we were there in the early 80s protesting for, for social justice and for environmental progress. So I guess it, a lot of it comes from family. And I do have to owe a lot of credit to my dad because he was willing to put up with two teenagers, me and my brother, on a cross-country bike trip when I was just 15 years old. So we left our front door in D.C. and found ourselves at the end of the summer in Seattle. And having that experience was so eye-opening in so many ways, right? Like you get to know the nation. And and it makes the rest of bike commuting look easy, right? When you biked across the country, everything else is a lighter lift. Right? Like the personal empowerment of that really was what opened my eyes to what I could do as an individual. And surely, yeah, as my friends were learning to drive and driving to school, like that just seemed so unnecessary to me. (laughs) And of course, I was, you know, a budding environmentalist and worried about what was coming out of that tailpipe. So even in your tender teenage years, you you had that awareness. Yeah, people were starting to talk about this thing called the greenhouse effect. Mm -hmm. Now we know global climate disruption, right? And just the idea of polluting somebody else's air so that I can get around It just didn't make any sense to me. Like, Mm -hmm. why would I do that if I didn't absolutely have to? Well, it sounds like you didn't have parents who were busy trying to shove you into a driver's license and capitalism and everything else. No, no, I I don't think they've ever been worried about that. Now, when I later in life decided I wasn't going to have children, that was maybe a much harder thing for Mm -hmm. potential grandparents to Mm. absorb, but that's maybe a different story. So, yeah, that was a real wake up for me. But I went off to college and wanted to learn more about the environment and what we could do about it. And, you know, it took several years of learning, but I finally started to realize that if I was just going to devote my life to trying to fix the environment, first of all, I wouldn't have much success. And second of all, I wouldn't be really tackling all of the issues I care about because the true way to get at fixing our relationship to the environment is to heal our relationship with each other. The simple fact is the broken relationships we have as a species, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, is not just with the land. It's not just with the earth, but it's also with each other. And fundamental challenges like violence and war and racism, these things don't just hurt other people, but they also are really harmful to the planet. And I started to realize that we're going to have to do a lot more work than just fix our relationship with the land. And that's when I stumbled on this concept of sustainable development. And I Mm. I had this real moment of clarity from my senior year at Oberlin, reading a book for a class called A Fierce Green Fire by Philip Shabakov, where I first learned about this concept of sustainable development. And for me, that brought all the threads together because it wasn't just about fixing our relationship with the environment, but also fixing our social and our economic ills. And having just become a Quaker in college, 
I knew that I was also concerned not just about the environment and other species, but about people too. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about this Quaker thread. It's it's another yeah. one that I want to pull here because Quakerism is. I, I hope you can tell us a bit more about that as as a Christian denomination. But it's it's not a, a real common uh, tradition alongside, say, Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and and so forth in the Christian pantheon there. And you're a convert, I just learned in yeah. that last sentence. So tell me how you found Quakerism and what drew you to it, what keeps you in that tradition, and, and what does that practice look like and, and mean for you? Oh, I'd love to talk about it, because you're right. A lot of people only know of the oats, right? <laughs> I didn't even make the oats the Quaker, connection. Yeah, you're right. Or the Quaker state. Or... Okay. Well, let's just get that on the table now. Are, are you an oatmeal person? I make my own granola sometimes using Of course Quaker you're oats, an oatmeal sure. or granola yeah. person. So that's Quakerism just fit. Okay. No, in all seriousness. Very uh, wholesome. Tell, tell me, and, I, and our listeners can't see that you're wearing the funny Quaker hat right now. Of uh, course it's, it's issued. Yes, okay. But. I am just kidding, listeners. Okay. Tell us about Quakerism and, and your relationship with it. Yeah. So I was actually raised a sort of a Reformed Catholic. My, Wait, my what's parents, a Reformed Catholic? Well, my parents were raised in more of a traditional Catholic way, but oh. for them, the sort of hierarchy of the Catholic Church and all the very conservative decrees of the Catholic leadership didn't sit well with them. Mm. And they wanted a more active role in their faith. And so they joined what I guess you'd call a lay community of Catholics, not recognized by the church, but self-organized mm-hmm. and would run their own masses and hire priests and ran their own Sunday schools and things like that. So it's a very different kind of Catholic community. And there was a lot of interest in social justice and and more and more today, I hear from them, they're still involved in that community and more concerned about climate change and environmental issues as well as part of their faith. But for me, still, a lot of the sort of trappings of Catholicism and some of the fundamental beliefs just didn't really ever speak to me as a kid. And so when I was in high school, my dad started teaching at a Quaker high school in D.C. I didn't go to it, but he would bring home stories about these Quaker practices of silence and consensus and things just started to click about that. And he encouraged me to check it out when I went off to college. And fortunately, Oberlin had a small Quaker community. Uh, the smallness of it was something I really resonated with as well. But the, the basic practice of Quaker meetings, which are fundamentally about sitting in silence, uh, waiting to hear the word of the divine, and possibly to share that with others in the community, uh, if you feel called to do so, if you feel like it is a message appropriate for the group and not just for you. That felt really nice, uh, felt uh, really active. In Quakerism, there's no sort of telling you what to believe. Well, and there's very little hierarchy whatsoever, no as hierarchy. I understand it. Yeah. Uh, very, no ordained priesthood. Exactly. I mean, almost the exact opposite of institutional Catholicism. It's about a direct relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. To me, that was extremely exciting. I loved the sort of challenge of it. Mm-hmm. The whole name Quaker is a nickname. It's a religious society of friends. And that name came about because others would notice that in meeting for worship, people might start to tremble a little before they speak because they were so overcome with emotion and the power of the messages that they were receiving and wanting to share and that's what it's. That's what it feels like. Uh, it feels like a very active practice where you're you're constantly engaged in wrestling. It's a difficult practice. It's very difficult to sit in silence for an hour and just wrestle with your own thoughts or try and clear your mind and make space for for divine inspiration. That kind of thing. 
or to deal with the messages that you do receive. Maybe you don't understand them. Maybe you don't know what to do with them. Maybe you don't know if they're appropriate to share with the group. I have felt those struggles, uh, and it's not always as relaxing as one might assume a quiet meditation to be, right? Uh, It is a wrestling. It is a wrestling with your own faith every day and the meaning of, you know, sort of the existential, why are we here? What are we meant to do? And that can be challenging, but for me, it's exciting. (laughs) It gives me an active role in my faith. Well, as you describe it, what I hear there is a certain degree of intentionality in the worship compared, say, to the worship services in more institutional versions of Christianity where you can go and stand up and sit down at the right time and be a passive participant. Yeah, it sounds like you've described an hour's worth of active, personal, inner struggle. listening. (laughs) Listening, yes. Yeah. Listening for the divine and listening to others if they're sharing. Maybe it's listening to just the birds or the passing wind or whatever, but it's active listening for an hour, which can be exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) It's not necessarily relaxing. And then building that out beyond just meeting for worship, it's that kind of approach to life. Mm. Uh, Looking for signs of divine inspiration in, in your direction in life, too. What's the right thing to do? I mean, we were faced with that so many times every day, right? And how to treat others and how to repair relationships. That's fundamentally what I think Quakerism tries to get us to focus on. And to me, that's why there's such a direct connection with my faith and sustainability. Well, and and I think about how radically countercultural that is. I think Quakers have always been countercultural yeah. since since their since well, their first founding. abolitionists, right? Yeah. But but what you're describing is a culture uh, and practice of listening. And I think we're in a culture that's all about pronouncing, right. all about speaking uh, my own truth or my own opinion, less skilled perhaps at listening, whether to others right. for the sake of, of growth and you'd mentioned consensus decision-making, but also and equally importantly, listening to the more than human world, listening to the rest of the created order and all the various ways that it speaks in languages other than English, shall we say. Yeah. Boy, do I learn that when I get into my beehives. So I'm a beekeeper. I was just in the hives yesterday. And if you are a good beekeeper, you're a good listener and you're attentive to what's going on in the hive. And you use all of your senses. You can smell things about the hive that that will teach you things too. It's about observing nature in its the way it should be working. Now, it's a slightly controlled environment because you've built this box for them to live in that works for humans to help manage them easier. But just the experience of interacting with a community of 30,000 individuals who communicate in a way that we can't even fathom by dancing, right? Or by beating of wings or by releasing of pheromones or what have you and are able to make collective decisions for the good of the community. And emergent decisions, which is even it, more yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing, right? And that's just one small example of learning from nature to be better people. Yeah. Mm. So I think I'm already seeing how these two threads are, are beginning to weave together. But I would just want to make that question explicit. It sounds like from your background, you had intentionality both in your, let's just call it environmental upbringing or awareness of environmental issues. And, and also what you described of, of your parents' commitments uh, to religiosity and then your own, a lot of intentionality there too. A lot of mm-hmm. choosing a path that was not religious autopilot. Yeah. 
So, Can I express a little discomfort though with intentionality because a part of it is exploration, and I don't know if those are in conflict or not. Oh, but to me, it yes, you're being intentional about I'm doing this thing for a reason, but mm-hmm. part of that reason is that I don't know all the answers and I want to explore. Okay, uh, and I I don't believe that all truth was written down in this one text, right? The Bible or <laughs> the Torah or any of mm-hmm. the others, but that truths could be gleaned from all of those texts, right? And and that truth is constantly coming to us, maybe in the form of a beehive, right? But there's this notion in the religious society of friends of continuing revelation mm-hmm. that if we have a direct relationship with the divine and we're listening with intention, we may be exposed to new revelations that were not revealed earlier, new truths. Perhaps they only are meaningful to us, but probably also meaningful to the broader community. Mm, okay. All right. Well, duly corrected on, well, on the I don't word know intentionality, but definitely a, a consciousness yes. of environmental realities, of spiritual truth or spiritual seeking that you've, you've brought forward into your adult life. How have those two begun to, or how have they always informed each other? Because I don't know to what extent you weave those together in your, shall we say, your public life uh, (laughs) as director of sustainability, or if your faith is informing those things personally but not professionally. How do those work together as you walk through your days? Yeah, I guess I'd, uh, it's not as conscious as maybe it should be. Like uh, I'm, I, it's not I'm not coming up with a super easy answer for you, but I feel like the purpose of Quaker faith is to do good in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not a focus on the afterlife. Like mm. I'm gonna behave well now so I can have a good afterlife. Like that's not what Quakers focus themselves around. Like mm-hmm. it's about healing relationships on the communities we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And so that translates into motivation for everything I do is that I am actively and intentionally getting up in the morning, trying to make the world a better place and seeing my role at the university of Louisville and everywhere else is to be a change agent. And the change I'm seeking is less dysfunctionality in our relationships with each other and with the planet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I think I, I'd want to circle back to this uh, integration piece because I'm feeling like there's a lot of things to explore there. But let's talk about you as a change agent or your understanding of the need for change. Yeah. Uh, clearly, you have deep concerns about the health of the planet. And clearly, you have deep concerns about our fate as people aboard Spaceship Earth, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and I, I know you well enough to know you've got a pretty broad and nuanced view as to how we got where we are mm. and, and and some pictures of what healing might look like. I was watching a couple of TED Talks that, that you've given, and in one of them you said that we would not solve our problems by tinkering around the edges. Right. And that we I c- see a lot of that. Right. Know. And then we can't, even more sharply pointed, we can't uh, chop our way to sustainability. <laughs> right. <laughs> So you're really calling for a very radical reevaluation of our environmental footprint, but also how environmental concerns connect to social and economic health. So can you paint that picture for me in terms of how we got here, what's broken, and what your vision of that restored earth looks like? Wow. Yeah. Well, big series of questions there. (laughs) Nice, easy one to bite off and chew on for a long time, actually. No, this is great because... I think a lot of us are plagued with this feeling of something's broken, something's Mm -hmm. wrong. What could we possibly do about it? And 
frequently the thinking is that the only way forward is kind of suffering and we're going to have to give up put on our cardigans turn down our heat and suffer our way to a better world (laughs) right suffer our way to a better world Um, that slogan probably doesn't work that well no (laughs) and for me i haven't found that it's the complete opposite that this is liberatory work and that it is joyful and that this process of healing relationships with the planet and with each other is so rewarding that the last thing I ever think about is, boy, this is, oh, the suffering, you know? Like, so, I mean, your questions are very good. Like, how did we get to this place of dysfunctionality? And what are the ways forward? Well, there are so many. (laughs) There's so many reasons we got here, and there are so many ways forward. But you started off by saying that this is a radical call for change. Well, is it? I mean, (laughs) I don't know, because... So change from what, to start with? Uh, what What's your main diagnosis? There is an illness of affluence in the United States mm. and in much of the West, right, where we're endlessly trying to gain more and more and more wealth, thinking that that is a road to satisfaction and happiness. And all of the science indicates that above a pretty basic level of income, <laughs> adding a few more thousand dollars or tens of thousands of dollars doesn't really make us happier in mm. the end. And that some of the happiest nations on earth are some of the most, what we would consider, impoverished. Mm-hmm. I think Bhutan has this commitment to gross national happiness instead of gross domestic product, right? And I love that concept. I've never been to Bhutan, but I've lived in many other cultures mm-hmm. that don't sort of think the way we in the U.S. tend to think about prosperity. And they're coming from a place of far fewer resources, and yet the pace of life <laughs> and the things people are striving for are just so much more manageable. And it's all leads to such more gratifying existence. And those are the cultures I feel more at home in, honestly, because this treadmill in the United States just doesn't sit well with me. Mm. And I don't feel like we're training people in higher education and public school in general. I don't I don't feel like people are getting trained for happiness, right? They're getting trained to be good players in a capitalist, wealth-concentrating system that maybe won't serve their ends in the, in the long run. And right. They're trained to be sick in a sick train, in a system of uh, affluenza. Because, because being sick generates money for others as well, right? So there's a lot of reinforcing mechanisms within this system that we're in that are not serving our fundamental human needs uh, for connection with each other, for strength of community, for resilience. We're trained and given messages all the time to be consumers. And that's why I say we cannot shop our way out of this problem. Yeah. So, I mean, A, because shopping caused the problem in the first place, right? (laughs) Right. But also, I wonder if we could push a little deeper here in terms of what may be causing the sickness, as you described it, of affluence. Do you see there being some kinds of spiritual root causes or attitudinal issues that made us susceptible to that kind of illness, shall we say? I don't know too much about how this looks in other countries, but certainly here in the U.S., the more I learn about our history, the more I I see connections back to how we got to the place we're in. I mean, Mm. all of the settling of the U.S. involved displacement Mm. and destruction of Mm. 
functioning communities of people. Thriving right? communities. Thriving yeah. communities of people that knew how to live in right relationship with the land. And I don't want to overly put indigenous cultures up on some pedestal and say no indigenous person ever did anything wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. But mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow we were erasing that more functioning relationship and in, in cultures. Right. Well, uh, the, like Jared Diamond in 1491, yeah, yeah. The, the narrative that we've always been told is that the white settlers came in to uh, civilize. civilize this <laughs> this this savage place. Yes. When in point of fact, I mean, the, the research indicates that this place was not at all savage. It was yeah. quite civilized. And yeah. in fact, quite a bit more civilized right. than than most of the colonists would subsequently be. Yeah. So, I mean, we founded this nation in genocide, and then we brought slavery over and founded our economy on slavery. And once the Industrial Revolution came along and the Civil War came along, we sort of just switched gears from slavery to fossil fuels. Interesting. So what I think I'm hearing in that thread is we brought the illness with us. And then we fed the illness with genocide, with slavery, with fossil fuel use, et cetera. Those are all just fueling it. Yeah. I'm wondering what many, the root causes are. Well, many of us did it in the name of God, right? There was oh, a gosh, religious yeah. fervor involved. Mm-hmm. And the, the Spanish crown was willing to fund you know, Christopher Columbus and then all the other uh, <laughs> enslavers and and destroyers of the communities that were here, we're willing to fund that as long as you, we'll pay for it as long as you are willing to make good Christians out of them. And to me, that will and send hold, home a lot of gold to Spain. Yeah, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Extract the resources and and make the natives Christians. So and perverted religious motives, oh perverted my. economic motives. Yeah. In so a toxic I mean, all, soup. All of that ties back to my discomfort with Catholicism and traditional Christian faith, right? Um, Mm. Because of that history. Yeah, and the idea that we should be imposing our faith on other people, Mm -hmm. to me, is absurd. Because Quakers are not an an evangelical tradition in in the sense of trying to make converts, right? You know, there are all kinds of Quakers nowadays. There are some who even call themselves evangelical Quakers, which I don't really understand, Mm. honestly. But no, certainly the bread of Quakerism that I resonate with one could introduce someone to Quaker ideas for sure, but not not in a way of I'm imposing my faith on yours because it's superior right. uh, or it is the ultimate truth. Like that is antithetical to what I see Quakers believing in in this notion that we can all have a direct relationship to the divine and it can look a lot of different ways okay. and that we don't need to impose our truth on others. Uh, you know, so that I, I think some of these fundamental things lie at the root of the founding of this nation. Hmm. This idea of the expansive open West, right? That we can just go out and colonize endlessly. And what got tied to it was this sort of rugged individualism, uh, which is a concept that I I wrestle with all the time because I feel it. Like I cannot deny that I am, you know, a product of this US culture. I, I love to be independent in a lot of ways. But deep down, when I look at it critically, I know that that's part of what's gotten us into this problem place, is when we take that too far and then we stop caring about others who don't have the fortune of being able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps because they don't even have boots, right? right. So, Well, an independence, rugged independence sounds great as long as you're rugged. <laughs> yeah. But wait till you get sick or hurt <laughs> exactly. or old or have some kind of catastrophe happen in your life. 
independence is a lot harder to swing then. Yeah. And there's no, there's no love or community there. And those things are really fundamental to sustainability. Uh, So. Yeah. So talk about that. I mean, what, I think I'm beginning to hear the hints of this. What, what is your dream of, of a restored earth? What does that look like in terms of economic relationships, in terms of social relationships? You've already sketched out kind of a religious diversity that, that might support that uh, in terms of spiritual experience, but but what what kind of world are you hoping and working for? Right. So an earth restored it fundamentally means that we're no longer getting in the way of Mother Nature functioning as this planet is supposed to function. And that happens at every different kind of level, right? Like there's really local issues there, but there's also these global climate change kind of issues. And we need to get off fossil fuels, first of all, if we want to restore our relationship to the earth. We got to move away from extractive economies of all kinds where we're extracting wealth, whether it's out of people or out of natural resources, right? And we've got to move towards a more regenerative economy so that at the heart, we're all seen not just as consumers, but as producers as well. We can't shop our way out of this, but perhaps we can grow our way out of it. Because the truth is that we have everything we need on this planet. If we would just stop harming the planet and harming each other to get even more than we truly need, then we would be really starting to live in right relationship with the earth. And it's impossible to say what that looks like in any given place because it's so context specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, it matters what the local culture is, what the local ecosystem is, right? So I don't want to try and be prescriptive in my vision, but It's about healed relationships with one another where we are truly living off of our current account rather than putting debts onto future generations, which is where my whole environmental ethic started and this concept of sustainable development began, right? Like the very earliest concepts were about meeting the needs of the present without jeopardizing the ability of future generations to meet their needs. And that's a very simple definition of sustainability. It's maybe not perfect, but it's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> Is that the UN definition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dating back to the late 80s, early 90s, right? And it's very helpful to think of it in terms of needs rather than wants. And so, again, I want to echo that we live in a place of great abundance, but we don't tend to see it that way. So mm. a few great examples right here in Louisville, right? How do we treat our rainwater in Louisville? This is an abundant gift of of clean water from the heavens, right? Do we treat it like that? No, we put it in our sewers with the same water from our toilets, right? And mm. we, we try and put it all in the same pipe. Every drop of rain that hits the roof of this building and the street out in front of it, we try and put it in the same pipe as our sewage. And, and then and in heavy rainfall events, we put it in our lakes and rivers. We, we, we have no choice. We have a tsunami of, of sewage coming at us. Yeah. And so we can't treat it all. We have to release it. Or now MSD is trying to store it until the storm is gone and then treat it. Okay. (laughs) If we can build that much capacity, okay. But wouldn't it be wonderful if instead of treating rainwater as a waste product, something we had to get Mm. rid of, we valued it, tried to capture as much of it as we could for reuse. And since we live in a place of such abundance of rainwater, uh, get the rest going where it's supposed to go, which is into the groundwater. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I'm proudest of the University of Louisville doing is fixing our relationship with rainwater. Mm. We used to try and put it all in our sewers. And it was a problem for our neighbors downstream in Paducah. We were pooping on Paducah. 
every time we had a big rain, right? But it was also a problem for us with the localized flooding on campus. So we, in partnership with MSD, have installed massive underground infiltration systems all over campus and disconnected our downspouts and got the rainwater going where it should go. So that's one. Which is into the groundwater. Into the groundwater. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's one example of like a broken relationship. I mean, there's so many others, but I'll just touch on two more. We're given this incredible gift of solar energy every day, and we don't think of it as a gift. We tend to ignore it, or on the hot days, we try and hide from it, right? We have more solar power than we could ever know what to do with, and yet we don't capture but a teeny-weeny little fraction of it. Mm-hmm. What's the, the? I read a statistic on that some time ago that... The amount of, I won't get this exactly right, but something like the amount of solar energy hitting the Earth's surface in, I don't know, an hour or a day or something would be enough to power a whole, the whole year's planet worth of needs. for a year. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, that's practically impossible. Right. We're never going to get there. Right. But so much nature, untapped capacity. Nature figured out how to deal with that reality. With photosynthesis, yeah. By creating photosynthesis. And putting plants on every square inch of Mm -hmm. land and then... Which are little solar panels, And then algae in our oceans to capture all this wonderful energy and Mm -hmm. put it to good productive use. We're not doing that as humans yet. Once we start moving in that direction and getting off of this fossil fuel treadmill, which is only still with us because of greed, the entrenched wealthy interests who've gotten rich on that extractive economy are keeping us stuck... In this place where we're using energy we don't actually need to use <laughs> and not turning our face to the sun where it should be, right? So that's the second example. The third example, and I, forgive me if I'm going on too long, but the third example is our relationship with organic wastes. Mm. So <laughs> we, when we've got you know vegetable scraps or leaves in our yard <laughs> or wood shavings or whatever, coffee grounds, right, we... We tend to think of this as a problem, something we got to get rid of. Let's put it in a trash can. Let's send it to a landfill and forget about it, right? What a waste. Literally. And, <laughs> and not only a waste of a valuable resource, but now by putting our organic matter in an anaerobic environment in a landfill, we're generating methane. Most mm-hmm. of that methane's released to the atmosphere. Methane is a supercharged greenhouse gas. So by that simple act of putting my banana peel in a landfill instead of in a compost pile, I'm contributing to the greatest crisis facing humanity, and I'm not taking any of that great resource that's in that banana peel, which is the next generation of life could be there, and I'm, th- I'm sending it away and wanting to ignore mm-hmm. it instead of just putting it in a compost pile in my backyard, mm-hmm. making some great organic fertilizer for me to grow the next garden, right? Mm. So those are three just day-to-day examples of things we don't even think about or we tend to ignore. We have such a broken relationship with the water, with the sun, and with organic matter, right? And boy, if we could start just refocusing on the fundamental things that sustain us, we would have this fixed so quick. Like, it, it's truly so easy. Okay, I want to I push you a little bit there, if right. I may. Because what I'm hearing is uh, various examples of restored or healed, uh, rewrited relationships, relationship with water and rain, uh, relationship with solar power, relationship with waste. I'm trying to put that together with this idea that we're not going to be able to shop our way to sustainability. And what I think what you're really saying there is 
we can't get there, as you've said, by tinkering around the edges of our current system. Yeah. And there's some fundamentally broken things about our system. Yes. And so what I'm wondering is what is salvageable? This may not be an answerable question for you. I I don't think it is for me yet, Mm. uh, maybe ever. But what is salvageable in our current broken system? Or do you envision some kind of collapse? Uh, so do you, do you envision an evolution towards disconnected rain spouts or, or you know, downspouts uh, for the gutters and solar panels on every rooftop and essentially maintaining our current standard of living? Or do you see collapse and chaos? Or do you see something in between there or something that, that's totally off that spectrum? Yeah, before the pandemic hit, I was always thinking that we were probably going to be smart enough to avoid some catastrophes in this process of evolution. But of course, the longer I'm in this work and the less progress we see in the direction I think we need to go, the more certain I am that we're going to have to live through some catastrophes to get there. I mean, we're already seeing it with the global climate crisis, right? Like it's really too late uh, for us to completely avoid all of the global climate disruption we've well, already and, seen. And to be fair, I think, we, and I think you'd agree, we are making progress. Oh, yeah. The question is, is it fast, fast enough? enough and uh, uh, scale, scale enough? Yeah, exactly. And are we committed enough to it? And with the you know conference of parties, the COP26 happening right now, that is a very relevant question for humanity. And again, these are global issues. We can feel like, oh, it's so overwhelming. What role do I have to play? But Every time you choose what to do with your organic wastes, right? You are playing a role in this global play. And every time you decide how to get somewhere, whether you're going to use fossil fuels to get there, right? You're you're making choices that impact this global problem. And so mm-hmm. we all we all do have a role to play in this for sure. And I'm not going to let you off the hook. G- great, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I I do want to get to where you're where you're going and have already gone to some extent, which is how how we can reshape our daily uh, choices and how those affect our attitudes. I think that's that's really important. But I guess maybe what I really want to get at here is this question of hope and despair, which is like do you plant a tree today if the world is ending tomorrow? Or, yeah. <laughs> or um, yeah, you do, because <laughs> okay. it's going to affect you, right? Like, we are the ones who are destroying this. We are the ones with the broken relationship. And so we need to do these acts, not because alone they're going to solve anything, but because in the process of doing them, we are doing the work of healing, whether it's our own mind, our own perception, our own knowledge, right? Our own attitudes, awareness, or our relationships with others. Mm-hmm. So I plant that tree, even though, and this is true with my gorilla planting, even though I know it may not survive, right? <laughs> um, because that very act is an act of hope. It's an act of engagement with the challenge. Often I'm doing it in community with others, building relationships uh, of mutual trust and bonding, right? And mm-hmm. these are these are important things to do for their own sake, right? Mm-hmm. Whether or not they make a dent in the global crisis we're facing, how are we how are we ever going to fix it without making a lot of little dents together? Right. Right? Yeah. But we started this part of the conversation with your pessimism in the face of the pandemic. And sorry to keep pushing you here, but I'm just sitting with this question a lot myself these days, 
which is I, I too thought that we might rally ourselves more effectively in this pandemic and that it, if this kind of global crisis doesn't unite us and in fact further divides us as it mm. seems to have, there's a part of me that just is throwing up my hands thinking we will not unite until we are off the edge of the cliff. Mm. If even that, we may be fighting with each other mm. as we probably, that probably is our current situation where we are busy <laughs> falling off this cliff and taking jabs at each other. Uh, so I, I guess, sorry to push, but- um, No, this I, is really great I, I do. I do wonder, do you think we're gonna make it in time at scale? I'm not just concerned about me and the people I know. Uh, I'm not just concerned about the United States mm -hmm. <laughs> making it. I'm concerned with life on the planet mm -hmm. making it. And life, including more than human life. The more than human life is yeah. absolutely vital to this equation, right. right? It's vital to us, and it's vital to the ethics of it, right? So, I, yes, I have incredible hope in the resiliency of nature, mm to ultimately weather these storms. A really cynical view may may see that, uh, well, you know, the impacts of pandemics and the global climate crisis, these are just ways of nature checking humanities being out of control and overpopulated and mm -hmm. having too much power. Like, you know, that's maybe overthinking it or being a little cynical about it. But I do think that nature's always teaching us lessons and they can be some really hard ones. And I don't know where the line is, what it's going to take to turn us around. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always hopeful that it'll happen sooner than later. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, I don't want to sit around and brood about it. Right. That doesn't feel like my point on the planet. Mm -hmm. I want to have fun tackling this problem in joyful and creative ways. And that's why... I'm not a dour person about this, right? Well, like I, I don't, I don't wake up every day and go, "Oh my God, we're so doomed. What are we gonna do?" I know. I, I think I think of you as as, as the happy stoic. Like yeah. you're this person who has these radical lifestyle commitments. You don't drive. You don't. Yeah, because look, not having a car is fantastic. Okay, tell us about this. It is so great. <laughs> why? I don't understand why people think cars are gonna give them happiness or <laughs> some kind of access to things. Like no, they are a huge burden, a huge financial burden, right? Like there's the cost of buying the thing. And then AAA estimates the average car owner in America spending something like $10,000 a year on gas and parking and insurance. All the time I have people contacting me, where do I park? How do I find park? I never have to ever think about that. I never have to worry about this. I completely never worry about that. Oh, my car broke down. I can't get there. I never think about that, right? Like, what I have about your knee broke down joy. or your, your, your body broke down. You <laughs> no, cycling keeps me healthy and fit, okay, right? Okay. Like, it is part of the solution. Yes, sometimes I have to bike in the rain, but okay, that's not miserable. Like, it's an experience. If you've ever been, like, hiking in the rain or camping in the rain, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's, it's not all bad, right? <laughs> it's just part of the experience of living. Uh, and if I've at least gotten a great workout uh, and maybe waved to some neighbors as I've gotten to where I need to go, it's not all bad, you know, no matter what else happens that day. So, you know, instead of having to suffer through road rage and the expense and just the cognitive dissonance of being someone who cares about our future while driving, I, I, what? Like, I don't know how people can live in that mental space. It would drive me crazy, right? And it would give me road rage. Oh, I'm feeling so bad for <laughs> For driving to this interview, albeit in an electric car, and asking you about parking. 
And I'm not trying to say that in any way to point the point a finger, Kyle. I'm just saying, uh, if you join look me, look at what I'm missing out in on. The car, right? Look at what you're missing out on. Like all this health, all this savings. My wife and I are car free in Louisville. That's like twenty extra thousand dollars we get to spend on whatever we want. And in one year, we could afford enough solar power to never have to use fossil fuels again in our mm-hmm. home. Like mm-hmm. what? This is how doable. This is in a place of wealth and abundance, right? If our focus is on fixing our relationships rather than climbing up some kind of imaginary ladder in our head or just accumulating more and more wealth, none of that is going to make us happier. So why are we bothering? And giving things up that I don't feel comfortable with, whether it's constant connectivity of a smartphone or the fossil fuel destruction of a car, like giving those things up is actually opening the doors to all kinds of opportunities for for me. And I'm not going to be telling you how to live your life. It's you got to figure it out. What are the barriers to your happiness? Right. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you, Justin, because I have talked with a lot of environmentalists over many decades of environmental work who are, and I put myself in this category sometimes, who can be really dour and depressing. Depressed and depressing. Oh, yeah. And that's that's not how you present. And I, I think on the one hand, we need the Greta Thunbergs of the world to call us to account and to be angry. and right. to be right. and to There's be, a time for that. Yeah, to be angry and to be despairing on some level and worried and anxious, of course, as a younger person thinking about their future. And yet as much as I just deeply admire her and she's doing exactly what she needs to be doing for sure – I also think that that is not enough, that we we will not change our ways by guilt and shame and fear and anxiousness and whatever else, but more so by someone such as you, the happy biker, or (laughs) setting setting an example of how things could be different and that that different is not just suffering and sacrifice. That different is pleasure and freedom and other kinds of joy that... I mean, to get back to your earlier point, that our affluenza economy promises but can't deliver. Yes. It's about welcoming people in to this place of joy and abundance and connection and resilience that involves giving up some things, but maybe they're things that aren't healthy for you or for us as a society or for our relationships with one another and with the planet. And there's really no better way to live. So... Yes, we need some rage sometimes, <laughs> like there's plenty to be upset about, but if that's that's all our party is, is a rage party, you're not going to get very many people to that party. What about the question of addiction? Because mm, I, could I, like say, it. I could say, I know that eating sugary things is not good for me. Right. And I can't stop grabbing the candy bar. (laughs) I know I will be better and my (laughs) cholesterol numbers will look better. I know that my life will be better if I can make these choices for these different kinds of behaviors. And I can't summon the willpower. Because I do think in many cases, you'd mentioned greed earlier. And I think that's true, particularly on the part of, say, you know, big companies, like extractive companies and so forth. But I think a lot of us just can't break our habits. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, uh, so <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you you had formation from an early age into the kinds of choices that that you've made. Those were modeled for you blessedly so by your parents and 
I mean, I'm not discounting the hard choices you've you've had to make and the willpower that's required, but most of us probably didn't have that kind of modeling, that kind of upbringing. Most of us are having to make these decisions from a place of full-on addiction. Mm. <laughs> How would you recommend we break that addiction so we can make some of these healthier choices? And, and to put in a special spin on it, I'm going to ask that not just from a practical, environmental, economic daily lifestyle choice angle, but also from a spiritual perspective. Is there a place for spiritual practice in this need to summon willpower, to break addictions, to make good choices? Oh my gosh, is there ever, right? Like the whole 12-step program, there's so many recovering addicts who credit all of their ability to get out of addiction to a higher power, right? And they all define that differently, and you're welcome to define it however you want. But that is, I think, absolutely fundamental to getting us out of these dark places. Mm. So part of my story, uh, I'm glad you brought up addiction, is I, from a very young age, had some pain, some emotional pain, because I never got to meet my grandfather, Mm. who died because of conditions related to alcoholism. Mm. So as a very young kid, I knew this, and I knew that this thing called addiction had stolen one of my grandparents from me, Mm. right? So I was pretty averse to alcohol, (laughs) that whole concept. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that sort of predates my refusal to get a car, was I didn't want to drink any alcohol either. I still never touched the stuff. Like, I have no interest in that. Like, I knew Mm -hmm. it took my grandfather from me, and I didn't want to be a part of it. And that sort of informed this concept to me of, what if I also say no to cars? Like, I know cars are killing people. (laughs) I didn't have any personal pain associated with that, but I also had this great joyful experience of being car free. And maybe that, maybe I should turn my attention to that instead. And so, yes, I think we need to get over our addictions. We need to think of the, the car ads, the truck ads, the, you know, the local car dealership as, you know, a drug dealer, right? <laughs> They're peddling <laughs> this addiction and, selling you a story about what's going to make you happy. And that first hit feels great. And for many of us, it's at the age of 15, right? That first hit of quote-unquote freedom, like I can go anywhere in this thing. I had the same hit of <laughs> joy from a bicycle. Like I can go anywhere under well, my own power, well, right? To that, Not to rabbit trail here, but to that point about freedom and cars, I don't know if you would agree from your experience uh, with students at U of L, but I'm thinking about my own daughters who are they've they've turned 18. They still have no interest in getting a driver's license. That's amazing. And I don't think they're alone. I think there are statistics on this that uh, a much smaller percentage of younger people are interested in car ownership. So yeah, maybe there's some. Are you seeing that? I am, but I also see lots of people here at the University of Louisville, which doesn't just serve the elite, you know, people who have to go to jobs, mm-hmm. you know, and work out at UPS Worldport, not exactly an easy thing to bike commute to right. or even transit to, although there are some options, right? Like they feel like they have to have a car on campus. So I think there is a whole notion of the (laughs) – used to be called the sharing economy or the shared economy, right? Like when this whole idea of Uber and Lyft came about, it was about sharing the ride originally, (laughs) which to me sounded great. Like, oh, that's awesome. But now it's become this gig economy, which is very different. But Mm. yeah, I think this – Newer generations don't need to own as much stuff to be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, they just want the function of the thing rather than the thing itself. Yeah. Uh, and that can be 
a way out if we do it right, but <laughs> I don't think there's been a lot of intentionality about pursuing that kind of culture. Unfortunately, uh, we just tend to figure out how we can monetize everything right? and make a bigger <laughs> Not buck out that we're of it, cynical right? at all in this conversation. <laughs> As we come to a close, Justin, we've talked a lot about things that people can give up, you know, give up cars, give up fossil fuels mm. and, and so forth. But you've also mentioned things that folks can add with, right. with, with great pleasure, honestly, uh, biking being one of them. What are some of the other things that someone listening to this who's convinced of the need for change and that it can be a joyful path, what would be just a few practical suggestions of things they could add that, that might make the giving up a little easier? Right, exactly. <laughs> add it on. Yeah, I mean, think of what you've already given up by living in this culture. And what we need to add is more healthy relationships. I'll say it again, right? With each other and with the planet. And so you figure out what that means for you. But for me, it means tending the soil. And so growing things, mm -hmm. being, being a productive person is such a joy for me. And it gives me such a connection to the earth. And it's so rejuvenating uh, to get out every spring and plant a new seed and learn from that process, Right. So And don't you do it on like vacant lots? In, yes, in you can Louisville? do it anywhere. You can do it at a pot in your window or on your deck or mm -hmm. in your yard or in your neighbor's yard mm -hmm. or in a vacant lot or a community garden or indoors with lights. There's so many opportunities to grow. And mm -hmm. I encourage everybody to tap into that joy mm -hmm. and add that. So less time shopping, more time producing. Less time consuming, mm -hmm. more time producing, right? Like. Mm -hmm. Learn how to produce some of the things that you consume. Not 100%, like you're never probably going to get there, but just start figuring out, like, can I mend this thing that's broken instead of buying something new? <laughs> that may be a learning process, right? It may be a frustrating learning process. I might learn about the right to repair, you know? <laughs> uh, but there may be some simple things like clothing I could mend instead of buying new. Or learn how to grow some of the things that you would otherwise buy whether it's food or fiber or whatever, and learn how to grow community as well. I think knowing our neighbors and developing relationships with them is so vital to our future and our resilience and to fundamental sustainability. That well, opening, and to human fulfillment. Yeah, too. and to fulfillment, right? And to right relationship. Like We are in wrong relationship right now. We're focused on the wrong things. And that is closing the door to a lot of great opportunities that are right in front of us we truly live in a place of incredible abundance, and we just mm. need to tap into it. Mm. Well, I, I want to finish. Uh, we started talking about Quakerism, and I want to close that circle if we could. So I know that uh, you said uh, Quakers, or at least your, your particular uh, version of Quakerism, is not inclined to evangelism uh, or preaching or anything. But do you have any particular spiritual practices that come out of your Quaker experience that you think would be applicable to others or helpful to others as they cultivate their own forms of personal and social and yeah. environmental resilience? Well, I think what Quakers do in their meeting for worship, right, is what a lot of people in a lot of faiths are familiar with. They call it praying, right, in other <laughs> faiths. And I fear that for a lot of people, praying is more thought of as like a request, a beseeching, uh, hmm. rather than... Active listening. Mm -hmm. 
if you're doing that, that's great and keep doing, keep it up because I think it's very valuable. But I think since so many of us are familiar with praying, if we refocus it away from like the asking divine, for things, asking right? for things, yeah. right? Uh, if we shift it away from that to opening our hearts to listening, what is God or the divine or however we want to conceptualize it calling me to do in this moment? Uh, and if we're very intentional about listening for that, I think it will open up wonderful new worlds of possibility. And that doesn't have to look like a full hour of silence, right? <laughs> so uh, yes. however you can work it in, Baby steps. <laughs> into your life, just being open to this concept of continuing revelation, right? Maybe the truth wasn't all written down by somebody sometime, somewhere, but is always revealing itself to mm. us. And we can get that in a walk in the woods, right? So keep those eyes and ears open for this opportunity to learn more about right relationship, and I, I think we'll all be better for it. Hmm. Well, to close, Justin, if if someone, first of all, if, if someone's moved by this conversation, as, as I hope some will be, if you could connect them to one great resource, whether that's a website or a movie they have to see, a book they have to read, one, maybe up to three, um, and we'll put them in the show notes, but what, what would you recommend? Oh my gosh. Yeah, there's so many wonderful books out there on all kinds of different sustainability topics. Uh, you know, Project Drawdown is an amazing reference, of course. Uh, but one thing I didn't even get to talk about is Quaker Earth Care Witness, mm. which is those of us in the religious society of friends who are paying particular attention to fixing our relationship with the earth and doing it in community. Uh, so QuakerEarthCareWitness.org is a great place to go to learn about that and about that bunch of great resources available to you there for how you might think differently about your relationship. Okay, wonderful. And how can folks connect with you and your great work here at UofL? Yes, go online to louisville.edu slash sustainability. Also, lots of just great public resources available there, but certainly lots of information about how we're approaching fixing the university's relationships. Uh, <laughs> I think you'll see a different view on the University of Louisville than you might get from other perspectives if you go to louisville.edu slash sustainability. Well, Justin, I am I'm moved by your fantastic witness that is inspiring without being too intimidating. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's deeply inviting, uh, and I'm, I'm so grateful for your joyful presence in this interview and in the world. Thank you so much. Oh, it was such a treat. Thank you, Kyle. And that is how my conversation with Kyle Kramer from the Earth and Spirit Center and his podcast wrapped our conversation earlier this month. And that is how we're going to conclude the show here on Sustainability Now this week because it's Thanksgiving week. There's not a whole lot on the calendar for you to do. So we're going to leave the community calendar for next week. And I'm just going to end by thanking you for tuning in and supporting community radio here in Louisville. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. I'll be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Entre cadena, Eva.